Would you stand with me as we sing 499, Open Our Eyes, Lord, 499. Let's stand and sing.
thank you so much, choir. What a good song and a good prayer for each of us, pray, to win some soul for the Lord. The late preacher and evangelist Vance Havner once said, when I was a boy, preachers used to talk about holding a revival. What we really need is somebody who will turn a revival loose. And uh, as I read that, I thought, I need to think about that a little bit. In fact, I've been thinking a lot this past week about revival, the theme of revival. What is it? What does it look like? How do we define it? How do we describe it? Have we ever even seen a revival uh, personally in our own life? Now, when most of us think about revival, we think about a special week of meetings. Well, it used to be a week. We've, we've kind of shortened it uh, to where now it's probably either three or four nights, maybe a Sunday through a Wednesday or a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, three or four nights where we have a special week of meetings. And so maybe three or four hours at the most. And we call it a revival. Is that a revival? Well, others would say, well, a revival is really people getting saved. So when several people are converted and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, someone might say that a revival has occurred. As, I, as you think about that, listen to what I ran across. Evangelism, as fine as it is, is not revival. After a signally successful meeting, Billy Graham was asked, is this revival? And you think about Billy Graham, you watch maybe the Billy Graham classics on television. You see hundreds and thousands of people coming forward to receive the Lord Jesus. And someone asked him, is this revival one time? And here's what Billy Graham said. No. When revival comes, I expect to see two things which we have not seen yet. First, a new sense of the holiness of God on the part of Christians. And second, a new sense of sinfulness of the sinfulness of sin on the part of Christians. So Billy Graham said, listen, this is not revival you're watching. It's evangelism, obviously, but it's not revival. Now, to complicate matters even more, we might also have to discern between revival and awakening and renewal and all these other terms. In fact, Nathan Finn writing said on two on two different occasions, I've taught courses on revival and spiritual awakening at Southeastern Seminary, one of our seminaries, including a course uh, on, uh, for the Ph.D. seminar. One of the interesting things about the study of revival and spiritual awakening is that nobody can agree upon standard definitions for these terms. In fact, folks can't even decide if revival and spiritual awakening are synonyms or reflect different but related concepts. And what about renewal, resurgence, reformation, etc.? He said historians, sociologists, pastors, and other popular writers are all over the map, even within their specific disciplines. So here we go. I'm looking for help here. What is revival? And he's taught a Ph.D. seminar and courses. He says, listen, nobody can agree on exactly what is a revival. Does it include awakening? What about resurgence? What about this? What about that? Now, as I understand it, revival, beloved, is for Christians. It's for Christians. Lost people don't need to be revived. They need to be regenerated. They need new life. They need to be born again. They need to be saved. But Christians, they need revival. But how do we describe it? How do we define it? How do we uh, explain it? Let me give you some examples of how people have tried to define revival. 
Here are some samples. J.I. Packer said that revival is God's quickening visitation of his people, touching their hearts and deepening his works of grace in their lives. Robert Baird said revival is an extraordinary season of religious interest. I really didn't like that one. No offense to Mr. Baird, but I don't think that's a good definition. Religious interest. I'm interested. Well, I don't know. The great preacher Stephen Alford said that the revival is the sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith and obedience. I think that's a better definition. I like J. Edwin Orr's. It's pretty simple. He said revival is a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, a time of refreshing. Robert Coleman said revival is the awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. Charles Finney said that revival is the return of the church from backslidings and the conversion of sinners. So Charles Finney says, well, not people getting saved. I think that's part of revival. But what about Richard Owen Roberts? He says revivals, an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. Duncan Campbell said revival is a community saturated with God. Might be. Finally, Earl Carnes said that the revival is the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a more vital spiritual life, witness and work by prayer and the word after repentance in crisis for their spiritual decline. I read all those to simply say, do you see what I'm talking about? We're all over the map when it comes to what is revival? What does it look like? How do you define it? Well, today we're going to try to add another definition to the list. Now, beloved, that's a tall order. That's a challenging order. But here's what we're going to do. We're not going to take it lightly. We're going to allow the scripture, the scripture to guide our steps and dictate the definition. Okay. so I want you to open your Bibles this morning, please, to Psalm 85. As you think about what is revival, as we pray to the Lord, revive us again, as we even try to, to form a definition of what revival really is all about. Yes, it includes coming back to the Lord for believers. Yes, people can be saved during a revival. But how do we define it? Well, look at Psalm 85, Psalm 85 to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. I'm going to read it all the way through. If you'd follow along as I read Psalm 85, the Bible says in Psalm 85, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Selah. You've taken away all your wrath. You've turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Verse six. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. 
Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Now, as you take this psalm as a whole, beloved, it can be divided pretty easily, I think, in three different sections. In verses one through three, it's talking about what the Lord has done. It's looking back to the past. And in verses four through seven, it's talking about what they wanted the Lord to do now in the present. And then in verses eight through 13, it's talking about what they were sure the Lord was going to do for them in the future. So you have the past, the present and the future. You could define it another way. In verses 1 through 3, we have praise. In verses 4 through 7, we have prayer. And in verses 8 through 13, we have faith and hope. That deals with the logical structure. That deals with the breakdown of the psalm. But we need to remember this, beloved. This is a psalm. It's a psalm. We have the hymn book of the Bible here. There's song book. Many of you remember back in May, you sent me to the basics conference out in Cleveland, Ohio. And I want to thank you for sending me again because I learned something there about the Psalms, about teaching and preaching the Psalms, about studying the Psalms that made the entire trip worth it. What I took away from those two sessions of the Psalms was worth flying to Cleveland and attending this conference. In two sessions, a man by the name of Christopher Ash taught on two different Psalms. And this being a pastor's conference, they were kind of giving instruction on looking at passages of Scripture and guidance and so forth. And so you not only got the teaching and the preaching for yourself, for your own spiritual edification, you got help in teaching and preaching later. He gave two great lessons, and I don't think I'll ever forget them. So this morning you get an ROI, you get a return on investment. You sent me, I went, I learned, I come back and I want to share these with you. And I think if you'll take these two lessons, it will open up the Psalms to you in a way that maybe you've never seen them before. First of all, when it comes to teaching the Psalms, preaching the Psalms, instructing the Psalms, he reminded us that a Psalms teacher is more like a music teacher than a biology teacher. Now that we have teachers here, we have math teachers and we have music teachers and all kinds of teachers here. But think about the difference between a music teacher and a biology teacher. He was making the point that when you stand to teach a psalm, you're not supposed to go about it methodically like a biology teacher dissecting a frog. Now, here's this and here's that. And boom, 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 you go through these steps. And instead, you're like a music teacher. This is a psalm. And a music teacher teaches the meaning, yes, but they also teach the tune. And they, they, they teach to lead one to a decision about it. In other words, when we come to a psalm, we're, we're, we're here to get it. But because the psalm, we're also supposed to feel it and want it for ourselves. In other words, there's emotions involved in these psalms. Just as we sing, think about the great emotion tied up when you stand and sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How many funerals I've gone to where they've sung a song called, In the Garden. And when you stand and you sing that song, there's emotion tied to the song. And so there's emotions here. That was one lesson, but that wasn't the greatest lesson I took away. The second and greatest lesson was this one. He said, when you come to a psalm, whether you're reading it, studying it or whatever, you want to ask three questions. Three questions. Number one, what would it have meant for an old covenant believer to sing 
or pray the psalm. What would it have meant for an old covenant believer, someone in the Old Testament, to to sing or pray this psalm? That's question number one. Question number two is this. What would it have meant for Jesus of Nazareth to sing or pray this psalm? Mm. Think about that. The Lord Jesus singing or praying this psalm. And the third lesson, third question is this. What does it mean for us corporately as a church, a body of Christ today to sing or pray this psalm? Now, I believe if you'll take those three questions back to the psalms when you're reading them, when you're going through them, whether it be a daily Bible reading or a Sunday school class, you begin to look at that psalm and say, first of all, what would it have meant for the Old Testament believers to sing and pray this psalm? And then secondly, what would it have meant? What would it have looked like for Jesus? What would Jesus be thinking? What would it mean for him to sing or pray this psalm? Because more than likely he did. And then thirdly, what does it mean for us today to sing or pray this psalm? Beloved, I'll be honest with you. Those three questions were worth the trip to Cleveland for me. They just opened my eyes to the psalms in a wonderful way. Now, if you have that lesson, I want us to go back to Psalm 85, and I want to try to put before us what we've learned. I want to, first of all, walk you through the psalm. And and I want you to feel the emotions that are going on here in this psalm. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You you brought back the captivity of Jacob. You've forgiven the iniquity of your people. You've covered all their sins. Selah. You've taken away all your wrath. You've turned from the fierceness of your anger. We find in these opening verses gratefulness and praise and and remembering God's gracious work on their behalf. We don't know what captivity they're talking about. You know, they were sent off to various captivities. Some believe this is the Babylonian captivity and they're brought back. But whatever captivity it was, they were brought back into the land. The Lord has graciously restored them. He's covered their sin. They stand forgiven. And beloved, those of us here today who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can gratefully praise the Lord that we stand forgiven. He's taken away his wrath from us. He's covered our sin. He's made us a son or daughter of God. And I wonder today, friend, can you say that truthfully? Can you say honestly today that I am forgiven? Has there been a time in your life where you've turned from your sin and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus? If not, you can today. If not, you can cry out to him today. Turn from your sin and place your faith in him and him alone. We have gratefulness. We have praise. We have remembrance. But then I want you to notice how the emotions change beginning at verse four. Restore us, O God, of our salvation. And cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Do you feel the difference in the emotion there? They go from praise and gratefulness to here they are crying out. They know they're back in the land. But something's not right. They need the Lord to work further in their lives. They cry out for restoration. Uh, They they feel the Lord is still angry with them. There's some things that are not right between them and God. And what they need is revival. 
What they need is to be brought to the joy of the Lord. And they cry out for His mercy. Do you feel their desperation there? Do you feel their desire? Their longing as they cry out for restoration and revival. We'll return in a moment to talk more about that. But let's keep going through the psalm as a whole. You get to verse 8 again, I think you'll notice a change in emotions. They're moving from the past and then the present. And now they're thinking about the future. They're thinking about what the Lord's going to do. Look at verse 8. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people and to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him, and shall make His footsteps our pathway. Do you feel the change in the emotion? They go from this opening where they're praising the Lord and remembering and they're grateful. Then they get to the point they're in desperation. Lord, restore us, revive us. And then their faith begins to build and they begin to praise the Lord. They were confident here. The Lord was going to speak peace, shalom to his people. They were looking for the glory of the Lord to return to the land. The Lord was going to give what was good. The land was going to be productive. He was going to prosper them. And while they were no doubt looking for this to take place in their day, in their life, in in their land, this is also prophetic, beloved. What's being talked about in these verses will ultimately take place when the Lord Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom here. You see, we see Jesus in those verses. You may not have noticed him, but there he is in those verses. As it talks about mercy and truth and righteousness and peace meeting together. We see Jesus. What what must he have been thinking as he read this psalm, as he sang this psalm, as he prayed this psalm? Would you notice it says there in the passage that mercy and truth and righteousness and peace are together? Now, what we have here is the cross. It was at the cross of Calvary that truth and righteousness met mercy and peace. F.B. Meyer put it so eloquently when he said mercy and righteousness are on one side, truth and peace on the other. They seem to be going on different errands and in different directions, but they meet at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Think about it for a moment. You have truth and righteousness, the law, the requirements, truth, righteousness. But then you have mercy and peace. And at the cross of the Lord Jesus, they met. God's righteous requirements were met as mercy and peace flowed down. And it says in verse 11, truth shall spring out of the earth. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. Verse 13, righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. And Meyer said righteousness not only looked down from heaven, but in the person of Jesus, it is trod our earth, leaving footsteps for us to follow. You find Jesus here. He's the one that they not only looked down from him, he came and righteousness trod and we're to follow in his footsteps. You see, in this psalm, we move from praise to desperation to faith and hope and then praise again. 
You feel the emotion as this psalmist here. But you're thinking, well, Rodney, okay, we looked at the whole psalm now. We've gone through it. We've hit the highlights here. But what about revival? I thought we were talking about revival. You gave us all these definitions. You talked about what is revival? Well, you're right. We're going to go back now and look at revival. We've got the big picture, right? We've looked at the psalm. We've seen it as a whole. Now we're going to zoom in on verse 6. In verse 6 it says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Now it's from this verse that I want us to draw up a definition for revival. Now remember where this verse is in the whole psalm. They've just reminded themselves of the Lord and his work in the past. Then they're praying here for restoration and for mercy. In essence, they're repenting of their sin. They believe the Lord's angry with them. They want that to come to an end. They're crying out to him. And he says, restore us, cease being angry with us, show us mercy, salvation, restore us, revive us. And it's important to realize that before we have revival, before we have revival, we must understand that we need revival. Don't miss that. Before we have revival, we need to understand that we need revival. And may I say, we need revival. But here's the question. What is revival? Well, here's our attempt at a definition. We're drawing it right out from verse 6 upon what we're studying in this psalm. Are you ready for it? I'd like to submit to you, based upon this passage, that revival, revival is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. Revival is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. In the Lord. Revival is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. Now, why you say that, preacher? Well, look at verse 6. Will you not revive us again? That. What comes next? Your people may rejoice in you. When they prayed for revival, they mentioned what the outcome would be if God answered them, didn't he? It says there very plainly. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So I'm submitting to you that revival is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. And please notice that the rejoicing, the joy is in God alone. Look at it again. Verse six. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice? It doesn't stop, does it? Didn't it say so you rejoice? Is there's two more words there that they may rejoice in you. So revival is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. Warren Wiersbe said that A.W. Tozier used to say, listen, it's difficult to get Christians to attend any meeting where God is the only center of attraction. He said we have to have entertainment, food and all sorts of distractions. But the psalmist wants God's people to rejoice in him alone. I found that's the truth there. It's hard to get people to come when God's the only center of attraction. We're going to praise and worship the Lord. So many will stay away. If you add food, more will come. Add entertainment, more will come. 
At giveaways, more will come. My mother was telling me back, back home that there's churches in their community that are giving away cars. Come and you win a car. Give away iPods and iPads or whatever, all kinds of stuff. I don't know what we give away. Toaster ovens. I don't know. We all got laying around the house. But, but God's not enough in our world, sad to say, for many. But notice here that the rejoicing is not in anything else or anyone else but God. So I submit to you today that revival is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. You see, sin causes us to lose our joy. Did you know that? As I look at this psalm, I can't help but think of David and his sin with Bathsheba. You remember David and Bathsheba? He sins. He tries to cover his sin. He's miserable, by the way. One of the most miserable people you ever meet is a backslidden Christian. Backslidden Christians, they're miserable. They may be mean, too. But in Psalm 51, Nathan, the prophet, comes in. He confronts David about his sin. And in Psalm 51, you have David crying out. You want to turn there? You can. He's crying out to the Lord. And I'll just pick it up in verse 10. Psalm 51, 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now listen to verse 12, Psalm 51. Restore to me the, what does it say? The joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then we see faith entering the picture. You know, it's going to happen. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. You see, beloved, David had lost his joy, not his salvation. He still had his salvation, but he lost his joy. And he says, God, clean my heart. Forgive me and restore the joy of my salvation. Joy is so important. The Prince of Preachers is known as Charles Spurgeon. He said, joy in the Lord is the ripest fruit of grace. All revivals and renewals lead up to it. By our possession of it, we may estimate our spiritual condition. It is a sure gauge of inward prosperity. A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is as impossible as spring without flowers or day dawn without light. You cannot have a revival without joy. Joy is so important. And here we find that sin leads to a loss of joy. That's why David, he cries out, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And not only does sin cause a loss of joy in the Lord, it also leads to a loss of strength. Listen to what Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet. Now, I don't want to stop there because some of you are like, amen, praise the Lord. That's what I want to do. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet. But don't, don't stop reading yet. And send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow. And the last part says this, if you know it, it says for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so if I'm walking around without my joy and I've lost the joy of my salvation, then I've lost my strength as well. Joy is so important. Listen to what first Peter one, six or nine says in this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. We're looking at first Peter right now in Sunday school. Verse seven, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. 
Listen, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy is so important. I love Psalm 30, verse five. The Bible says for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night. What does it say? But joy comes in the morning. So here's the thing. If we're correct, and I'm drawing it from Scripture, and I know there are other definitions, other passages to it, but I think we could add this to the list of definitions. If revival's the restoration of our joy in the Lord, then we have to ask this question. When do we need revival? Well, listen, we need revival any time we lose our joy in the Lord. We need revival. So I might need I might need reviving a couple times a day sometimes. Or I might go stretch for the joy of the Lord is my strength and I'm rejoicing. But any time I lose my joy in the Lord, I need revival. Can I add a second thing to that? I, I think we need revival any time that we enjoy something or someone else more than we enjoy the Lord. Think about that for a moment. There are times we allow things into our life. And things to hinder us and get us off track. And we begin to enjoy that thing, that person, that event, that whatever it is. We enjoy that more than we do God. We need revival. We need revival. Because I believe revival is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. Now here's the question. Very simple. I want to summarize it. What is revival? I believe from this passage, revival is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. When do we need revival? Anytime we lose our joy in the Lord. Anytime we enjoy something or someone else more than we enjoy the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. Don't nod your head. Don't shake your head. Don't do anything but in your own heart. Answer this question. Christian, has there ever been a time in your life? Has there ever been a time in your life when you had more joy in the Lord than you do right now? Has there ever been a time, Christian, in your life where you've had more joy in the Lord than you do right now? If the answer is yes. You need revival. You need revival. I believe our church needs revival. You say, preacher, what do we do? Well, I think we see it laid out, don't we? First of all, you come to the Lord, repent of any sin, and then cry out to Him, will you not revive us again that we can rejoice in you? Come and cry out with David in the psalm. Create a clean heart in me, O God, and restore unto me The joy of thy salvation. Revival, I believe, is the restoration of our joy in the Lord. Father, it is with a grateful heart we bow again in your holy presence. Lord, we thank you for the many that have studied revival and contributed definitions and helped us understand it. And Lord, we've tried in a very small way today to add another definition to the list to help us to better understand exactly what revival is and what it looks like and how it works. I pray, first of all, if there's anyone here who does not know you, that they would receive the free pardon of sin and the gift of eternal life. That you would regenerate them today, that you would save them. Lord, they would turn from their sin and place their faith in you. Lord, as we understand it, this whole theme of revival is about the believer. 
And Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. And I pray your Holy Spirit to examine our life today. Each one personally. Help us to be honest concerning our joy. Father, so many times we allow other things, other events. We get more excited about them than we do you. It takes other things to bring us to your house. It takes other things to get us to do what we ought to do. Lord, we have lost our joy in you. We've lost sight of how great you are. How glorious you are. Lord, we not only lose our joy, we lose our strength. Because we know that the joy of the Lord is our strength, you've said in your word. Father, I believe that we as a church corporately, we need revival. Lord, we don't need just a series of meetings. Lord, we need true heaven sent revival. That would change our lives and change this place. The Lord, just as David prayed that after the restoration of his joy came, then he'd go and lead transgressors in the right way. And Lord, that's the way it should work here. As we're right with you, we begin to go out and share your gospel and live before others and point others to the Lord Jesus. We know that evangelism is a fruit of that revival that we so desperately need. But Lord, if we're not excited about you and we're not rejoicing in you, then why would anybody else looking in our life? So, Lord, I don't know the heart of each individual today. Only you do. But I pray in these few moments as we bow that if there needs to be a restoration of joy in lives, if there needs to be a revival, awakening, if there needs to be salvation, whatever it is, I pray in these last few moments together that your Holy Spirit would have his will and way. And Lord, you be preparing us and guiding us day in and day out to take a measure of our joy today. Will you not revive us again, O oh God, that your people may rejoice in you. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. And amen. 458 is our closing hymn. If you need to be saved today, I would invite you to come. You say, what will happen, preacher? I'll welcome you and put you with someone who loves you and loves Jesus. They'll take a Bible and lead you to the cross. It's also going to happen. Glorious things. But a day has been for us that are Christians, most of it. Now, I wonder today, has God spoken to your heart? As we sing this closing hymn, Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee, the altar's open. You need to come today and pray you do that. 458, let's stand and sing, Nearer my God to thee.